Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 21 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview of Jean-Michel Ferrat, Senior Managing Director at Ankura Consulting and a leading FCPA expert. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Uh, In today's episode, I am proud to have Jean-Michel Ferrat. Uh, on the podcast with whom I've worked on uh, FCPA matters. Uh, Jean-Michel is a senior managing director at Ankura with over 20 years of experience in the specialized fields of forensic accounting, fraud detection, and data analytics. He has applied his skills in a variety of cases involving corruption, kickbacks, collusive bidding rings, money laundering, embezzlement, asset misappropriation, terrorist financing, and financial statement fraud. He has led or participated in reactive investigations and proactive compliance engagements, including Foreign Corrupt Practices Act monitorships across the United States and in over 25 countries around the world. Jean-Michel is also currently engaged as the forensic accounting expert on the Audit and Finance Committee of the Board of Directors of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, He's based in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Jean-Michel. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, and I know our listeners will be interested in hearing about your FCPA uh, experience, but it's great to have you here, and obviously we work together, and uh, it's fantastic to have you here to discuss some of your work. Mike, thanks so much for having me. I I very much appreciate the opportunity. Um, Always fun to work with you, and I look forward to having a, a good discussion here today as well. So I thought you, I thought it would be you know for us to have a conversation in terms of your experience and and I know you you work in a lot of different areas but where you and I have sort of uh, crossed paths is we've worked together on FCPA matters and I know your background is on investigations monitorships and uh, proactive sort of compliance uh, techniques so can you give us sort of a just an overview of your experience with anti-corruption issues, because I know it's pretty vast and it's pretty impressive. Sure, Mike. Uh, no, I appreciate that. Um, so I started uh, my career, Mike, as a uh, CPA in a uh, big, I guess it was big six at the time, firm uh, in the 90s. Uh, so I, I started really as a bean counter, learning um, sort of the basics of debits and credits, right? Um, I would, had the, the great fortune in the uh, about the 1997 timeframe of being not only a um, auditor of financial institutions, but being a fluent French speaker, uh, had the opportunity to go over to Switzerland and, and take part in uh, really one of the most historic investigations ever, uh, which was the investigation of Swiss banks for Holocaust-era bank accounts. Uh, and while that's not it was not FCPA specific. It's important to my background because really the first time uh, opportunity I had to um, understand forensic technology and understand data analytics and how uh, data analytics and data mining uh, can can help an investigation and in fact are crucial in an investigation, uh, uh, certainly in FCPA investigations. And so this goes back to 1997, 1998, 99, when forensic technology was really just starting. Um, 
once that investigation wrapped up, uh, I went back to uh, um, to New York and worked on a number of the large financial statement uh, investigations that came out at that time, including WorldCom uh, and Freddie Mac. Um, again, not um, uh, FCPA related, but the the skills of understanding underlying accounting, using data and data mining to identify anomalies, uh, I was really critical in, in where I got to uh, to the point where I am now. Uh, the 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 my entry really into the FCPA space happened um, with my retention as one of the lead forensic accountants on the UN oil for food investigation. Uh, so I had the great fortune of working with Paul Volcker um, on the Swiss bank investigation and, and was, was equally fortunate to, uh, to be tapped to help him and his team on the oil for food case, uh, which really became one of the largest, uh, and probably still is to date largest and most expansive, uh, uh, foreign corruption investigation ever. Um, uh, and on the heels of that investigation, which lasted a couple years, uh, have, uh, did a lot of work for the world bank in, uh, helping them root out a corruption around the world in their um, in their programs and their loans, uh, and then uh, really have focused um, since that time, which was around oh five oh six, have really focused almost almost exclusively in the FCPA space, uh, and that includes both um, uh, in investigations uh, as well as uh, corporate monitorships, and then assisting. Um, assisting companies in strengthening their compliance programs around the FCPA. Well, I mean, going back to, and I remember that you had worked in oil for food in that investigation. Um, that has to be, I mean, one of the largest investigations, even larger than Siemens um, in terms of the scope. I mean, we still run into companies today and due diligence who will, you know, they were part of that investigation. It touched so many companies. Um, well, it really was incredible, and you know, one of the sort of the neat things is is there really weren't any um, any bribery actions coming out of that, right? Because we had this situation where the Iraqi regime was on the take, uh, so the idea of a of of, of a foreign official um, enriching uh, him or herself wasn't quite within. Uh, the, the, the bounds of, of the way the FCPA was written. So you really, what the DOJ and SEC latched onto um, in those actions were the books and records provisions. Um, but the number of enforcement actions that came out of the FCP, uh, out of the oil for food program, and I think in my view, really helped to regenerate um, sort of the FCPA machine, right? FCPA Inc., as, as some people say. Right. Um, it was well over a hundred enforcement actions wow. uh, that were frankly just sort of handed to the Southern District in a lot of, uh, 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 you know, with the, the case really already made because that's what our investigation had done. Um, so I think in, in, in sort of in a lot of ways that uh, that went from 2003 to 2005. Let me get the dates right. And that's really around the time where uh, I think FCPA enforcement, I think we saw really ramping up. So I think that investigation in particular sort of had a large part in that resurgence. You know, and you mentioned, uh, Jean-Michel, you mentioned um, uh, data analytics. And uh, it's interesting to hear you use that term in, in terms of how you got involved in it and how sophisticated, I guess it's become, but now, and I'd like to sort of hear your, your perspective on this. And now we're hearing about data analytics being used in proactive, 
compliance. That to me is the new cutting edge area is using these same techniques in uh, not so much as investigating what happened in the past, but uh, sort of making sure that your controls are working uh, now. So do you see that as well in terms of your work and sort of your history with data analytics? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. You know, the, the, the modern day compliance program is very much leveraging enterprise data. It is leveraging the ability uh, of compliance professionals to look into the organization from a financial perspective. Um, and, and it's important to make a differentiation um, on, on this when we think about, you know, the various types of data that might be out there in an organization and, and how that data is created. Um, you know, the, the compliance functions typically have access to lots of data uh, that relate to compliance controls. And so from that, I mean things like training data. Um, uh, um, you know, the data, uh, you know, related to code of conduct type things where, you know, have people been trained on code of conduct, have third parties been trained on, on the code and anti-corruption policies and things of that nature. Um, so the, you know, when we talk about the pools of data, they're very different, um, and, and widespread. What forensic accountants are typically looking at, and which is why we're called accountants, is we're, we're looking at, uh, at, at, at leveraging data that's typically in ERP systems. And that, that can include the debits and credits, uh, you know, in general ledgers. It will include information in subledgers, like accounting subledgers. So who are we paying? What's the identity of individuals that we're paying? Where are we paying them? You know, are they located in one? Are, are they performing a service in one geography and getting paid to a bank account in another? Um, it will include all kinds of other information in terms of, you know, inventory, um, you know, sales information. Uh, are we uh, are we making sales to distributors at at highly rebated prices or at highly discounted prices that create the opportunity for a margin? Um, all of the, these things that we might ask questions on in a reactive investigation are things that compliance professionals are now asking uh, in a proactive sort of frame of mind. And the ability to set up protocols within the data that's available within your organization to identify anomalies and identify red flags in a timely basis really serve the purpose of, of enabling compliance to uh, verify and to test that the right. control that have been put in place from a compliance or accounting perspective are actually working properly. Uh, so leveraging that data really is key. And we you know, see large organizations doing that, um, you know, for obvious reasons. They're under much more scrutiny. Uh, but medium and small-sized organizations are really looking to do this as well, in particular if there are cost-effective ways to do that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, and I, I see it as well in terms of uh, even like testing, you know, gifts, meals and entertainment expenses and looking at them. Uh, I'm compliance. People need to get more into the, I hate to tell you this into the financial weeds, uh, because I think that's how they can also cross verify their own controls. Let's say that you have to fill out a form or whatever. They can verify that against the financial data. So. Um, let's, let me ask you another thing. Let's go. And, and I just sort of from a high level in your experience in terms of seeing schemes that are, you know, bribery schemes 
And we always hear that it's the forensic accountants that find it first. Like you may get a tip or you may do something, but you know, what's been your experience with that? And if you can generalize about, you know, the variety of schemes or the means by which people do these things and what you guys have sort of caught people doing and then, you know, help the attorneys uh, to, you know, sort of guide them through that. Yeah, look, so I, I, you, you, Mike, are much more seasoned than I am in, in these investigations. Um, and, and as I know you'll attest, there are a multitude of, of different ways uh, that people can get money out of a company, right? Right. Um, and, and, and the goal here is to create a pool of money that would enable the payment of a bribe. Um, and, and that's usually going to be done out of, out of corporate money, right? If I'm an individual right. sales guy and, and, you know, I need to make that big sale, I'm typically not going to make that bribe payment out of my own pocket. I'm going to find a way to, to, to have the company make that payment. Um, insofar as who finds these, I think the, the overwhelming, um, in the overwhelming, um, instances, number of cases, um, these issues are being caught by internal people within the company, right? They're being caught by whistleblowers or they're being identified by whistleblowers. Um, it, it, it is extremely difficult to, and I've been asked to do this before, it's extremely difficult to have a company say, can you come in and make sure that I don't have anything bad going on, right? right, right. Um, what, what forensic accounts are typically called into is when an allegation is present. Um, it, you know, when somebody has a suspicion of something, and that might be of a particular individual or a particular uh, procurement, uh, a particular region or business, something that will lead the forensic accountant to say, let's hone in on this, partic- this particular type of thing, right? It's really hard to do that needle in the haystack sort of analysis. Right. Um, uh, you, you know, in terms of the types of schemes, you, you know, the, the most, the ones that are spoken of the most frequently, uh, you, you know, really do tend to be the most prevalent, uh, and those are around the use of third parties, right, of, right. of sales agents and, and distributors. Uh, and what we're typically seeing there, you know, which is, which is consistent, I think, with what you'll hear for most FCA, uh, FCPA practitioners, um, is, is the, the, the fact that companies are getting money out to these third parties um, for services that aren't provided. Uh, in the ter- in in the in the sales agent case, um, so uh, more money is being paid to a particular sales agent than should be warranted um, with the amount of work that's being performed. In the case of distributors, um, uh, on the on the sales side, we're seeing instances where the the product being sold to a distributor is being sold at a preferential price. Which then creates the opportunity for that uh, that distributor to on sell that product at a margin, and that margin is what's creating the ability or the pull to pay a bribe. Um, uh, so you know, lots of different ways. We did a case a number of years ago, which was really an interesting one, uh, where the um, the CEO of a small company uh, was making bribe payments out of his bonus pool. So he was getting a, a, a particular bonus, um, and he was using funds from that bonus to make bribe payments. Uh, and, oh. and he was in, in, in cahoots with somebody uh, on the board that, w- that was actually um, 
that was part of the comp committee approving. Very difficult to detect these kinds of things unless you get an, an admission uh, or unless you get some kind of a of, of, uh, of a whistleblower. Um, so really a multitude of ways, but the idea really being where and how can one create a pool of cash to get money out of the organization. Um, setting up fictitious vendors is another obvious one. Um, yeah. which gets us into the whole idea of what do we do around due diligence around third parties, right? Knowing who we're doing business with, knowing the purpose of the, of the goods and services that are, that, that are allegedly being procured, uh, and making sure we're comfortable with making payments to those particular third. Have you seen, you know, in the same, going back to FCPA Inc. for a minute, you know, we have all these law firms, lawyers, everybody in the last 15, you know, years has suddenly gotten into FCPA. Is there the same, been the sort of same growth in forensic accounting because of the increased enforcement of uh, the FCPA? Have you seen that in the profession? I mean, absolutely. You you know, you look at at the, you know, the Walmarts and the Siemenses, you know, those are obvious, right? Uh, The the accounting firms that that worked on those, uh, you know, reaped, you know, tremendous benefits. Um, I, I, I think what you see as well, um, uh, in in particular, you know, not to call out my big four colleagues, but, um, it is, is a sort of a tendency of the forensic accounting professionals to try to do, um, some of the work that, um, one would typically reserve to a compliance professional or to an attorney. Um, it's sort of one of the things that I'm always very sensitive to. I think we do what we do quite well. Um, and that really is around data analytics. It's around, um, uh, analysis of data and accounting information, you know, in support of these broader, these sort of broader initiatives, right? And if, for example, we take the idea of evaluating a compliance program around the 10 hallmarks, our, our role, usually the way that I like to, to describe our role is, is in the accounting control section. Right. And we are experts in designing accounting controls and evaluating those controls and setting up protocols to test, you know, and find outliers. And, and as you know, that's one sliver of, of the hallmarks. Um, sort of the other piece that we typically help, um, folks like you on and corporations are those other parts of the compliance program and the hallmarks that leverage technology. Um, so if we're talking about, um, you know, how do you, how do you best um, sync up your due diligence information that is typically housed by a third party or in some other sort of outside of your ERP system? How do you sync that up to the ERP system, right? So that's not directly tied to the internal accounting controls. It's tied to other parts of the hallmark. But that idea of how do you leverage technology uh, is is one of the areas where, where we're typically trying to help um, attorneys in evaluating compliance programs. But it's, it's important in my mind to keep those uh, roles clear uh, so that forensic accountants are what they are. We're, we're called accountants for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of the industry, um, for obvious reasons, uh, for accounting firms, um, they try to muscle into, into other pieces of that work. Um, so I think that's just the reality. But, uh, but with the growth of that, I mean, it's not just the growth of the big four. Now we're seeing, you know, other companies in the forensic accounting area. I mean, I mean, I know now of, you know, I could say 
five to ten other companies that seem to be involved in a lot of these matters that aren't the big four. And I think there's been a sort of brain drain of people who sort of get, I don't want to say it like this, but, you know, burnt out at the top four, at the big four, and then they go off and sort of work in other professional settings that may be better, you know, environments to work in. Sure. I mean, look, you're talking to a guy that went through that that exact thought process. I spent almost a decade at the big four. Um, all of my partners at my current firm, Ankara, uh, have spent considerable amount of time at, at the big four as well. And, you know, we've all left for, for our own reasons. Um, but I could probably, you know, we could probably distill those reasons down to one or two. Um, and, and, you know, the benefit is, um, to, I think to our clients is, is, uh, is you're really getting folks that, you know, have worked on very large, engagements that have worked in, in a big four setting with big, you know, multinational companies, um, and have taken that experience, the best of those experiences, uh, and now are able to deliver those same, that sort of same expertise in a much more nimble way. Yeah. Uh, that's really the, the key to these, these firms that you're talking about. Um, some are, are more boutique-y, uh, some maybe a little bit more medium sized, but the idea really is to be able to deliver, this in a much more nimble way with really attention by uh, senior level folks on, on the engagement. So in, from my perspective, you know, I love doing this work and I spend the time doing the work, um, you know, even down at a detail level. Right. Uh, and that level of attention is not always possible in, in much larger firms. Right. Um, let's back up a, a couple other questions I wanted to make sure I cover with you. But uh, in the in the world of internal accounting controls, I guess, I guess one of the concerns I have as a practitioner in this area is that I don't think that people take enough time to carefully consider how to design their accounting controls, and they write documents that then, you know, controls that can then be used against individuals or even the company for a criminal prosecution for circumventing that control, and um, so. As you're designing, you guys design accounting controls, or you may like look at my company's accounting controls and say, "Here are some ways to fix it." I mean, what are what are what's the practical way you look at it? Obviously, to minimize risk, make sure of accurate accounting and everything like that. But do you have in your mind as well? Look, I I, um, I don't want um, you know to create something that's so burdensome or that people could just say easily, oh, Mike circumvented this control. You know, things have to have a purpose in the controls. So any practical yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, I think we could probably spend hours on this on, on this question. And and I think, you know, you, you probably would be able to answer this a little better than me, but I think what a regulator, uh, what, what, what the SEC would, would say is that the controls need to, we know they need to be designed to provide reasonable assurance, right? Because that's the wording in, in, in the statute. Um, and they need to be fit for purpose, right? So you can't have a bells and whistle, uh, uh, internal control structure at a hundred million dollar company. That's going to look the same as it would at Walmart, right? Or a, or a, a hundred billion dollar company. Um, so they need to be fit for purpose, but you need to be in a position where you can defend that, that internal control structure is re, is designed to reasonably detect, 
right? Um, and so that doesn't mean you have to spend so much money that you're getting that risk down to such a minute level um, that, uh, and that's really what you have to do. Um, it needs to be uh, uh, judgment based, right? And so your 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 controllership. Uh, the CFOs, the compliance professionals really need to get together. That's really where the risk assessment process comes in, right? So if we think about from an FCPA perspective, the need to perform a risk assessment, um, and in particular, a fraud and corruption risk assessment, um, you know, really, really taking up a hard look at what the internal controls are that are set up to mitigate specific risks, that process is oftentimes not done very well. Um, the mapping of specific risks down to those controls that are meant to mitigate is, is a really important step. Um, and, and, you know, we see sometimes larger organizations that don't do that step particularly well. And unless you do that step, what happens is you have, you, you have the risk of having gaps, right? I think that's the larger risk. So it's not, it's not necessarily that you've identified a risk, you've put in place a control, and it could have been designed a little bit better. Right. I think the bigger risk to an organization is you haven't really performed that gap analysis to say, uh-oh, we really need a control in this place because this risk uh, is, is inherent uh, and, and we need a way to mitigate it. Um, it, it, I, I think what we see really is a huge disparity, which makes complete sense between those companies that are subject, for example, to Sarbanes-Oxley and those that aren't. And the ones that are subject to SOX really have, have a leg up in the fraud and corruption controls because SOX, require, SOX does require you to, to evaluate uh, the risk of fraud and, and have that discussion and, and think through whether or not the control structure in place is going gonna, is gonna to mitigate that risk of fraud. Um, you, you obviously have materiality considerations in SOX that you don't in the FCPA, but you at least have to have that discussion. Um, those organizations that aren't subject to SOX don't necessarily need to have that discussion and sometimes don't have that discussion. But, um, but, uh, so that but, really but, would be... But jean Michel, I was going to say, because you raise a really good point right there about materiality. So you're designing controls in Sarbanes-Oxley, but there's a materiality... You know, I always hear from this CFO, I hear from the controller, well, you know, those aren't material transactions. But in fact, all, you know, all these bribery transactions, for the most part, I mean, and rarely have I seen any of them be uh, sort of a, a material transaction. So how do you resolve that tension when you're, let's say you're dealing with a Sarbanes-Oxley company? Um, how do you deal with that? Yeah, and that's of- what's really critical. Yeah, really, you know, what this boils down to in my mind, Mike, is the difference between a preventive control and a, de- and a detective control. Hmm. All right. And so the preventive controls are those ones that your organization sets up up front um, uh, to try to prevent something bad from happening. Right. So that would be um, things like segregation of duties. That would be um, requiring uh, the completion of bank recs within a particular amount of time. That would be to perform due diligence and have to have due diligence before you can onboard a new vendor into your system. Right. Those are all things that that you're trying to put in place to make sure that the transactions that flow through um, accurately represent the nature and the substance of the transaction. What I think the, 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 the huge thing that has to happen 
in addition to those uh, preventive controls are detective controls. And that's really where the compliance function comes in, right? The, the controller's office does not care about a $1,000 meal on entertainment right. expense, even right. though it may violate some policy. They don't care because it's not, gonna, it's not material to their financial statements. So from a financial statement risk, um, they, they don't care about that. Now, the compliance officer uh, will care about that. So the lens through which the compliance officer is looking at transactions is oftentimes very different from the lens at which the controller's office is. And the controller's office is the one that's setting up those controls, right, from a, from a financial reporting perspective. So if we circle back to my comment earlier about, about leveraging, leveraging corporate data, leveraging that information, the, the, the most successful compliance programs I've seen are, are where the compliance officer is really able to bring the controllership in as a partner and and help them to um, to set up um, set up protocols to get the compliance function uh, to have visibility into the types of things that it want that it may want to see, and that may include um, things that internal audit would usually never look at, or things that that the controllership would never usually look at. So, so running analytics and providing reports out of the accounting system of of particular, um, let's say, compliance-sensitive general ledger accounts, right? So, say, sponsorships and donations uh, and commissions and meals and entertainment are reflected in separate GL accounts, then running some analyses and trends and things like that uh, so that the compliance officers can evaluate those and say, huh, this is weird. Why do I have a spike of this in this particular place? You know, let me dig into that. Um, so the idea of providing that type of financial information in the form of a dashboard or reports to the compliance function is really critical. And, and it's really important in my, in what I've seen, you know, having that open, um, sort of relationship between compliance, internal audit, and the controllership, uh, really makes for the most effective, right. detective FCPA monitoring. And I, but I think that, and I think the challenge for compliance in the future is, um, you know, the CFOs and the controllers and the CFOs are like, well, look, we're taking care of Sarbanes-Oxley. Our internal audit function does all this for Sarbanes-Oxley. And now I'm saying I think compliance has to have a seat at the table of the financial control people to create exactly what you just described. And, and I have been telling com- chief compliance officers you need to be working much more closely beyond internal audit in the, what you're talking about, the preventative controls, you know, and the detection controls. The compliance officer should be there and, you know, on board and saying, here are the c- controls that I need around my areas of responsibility. But I also want to know what you guys are doing in case financial issues come up and I can, uh, you know, get some sort of uh, viewpoint into it. You raise a really good point. So, but I, do you see that? I mean, do you think that trend is going to continue? I, I hope it does in terms of everybody working together. I, look, I mean, I hope it does as well. And I think, you know, we have some real great um, sort of experience in, in seeing how that works firsthand. And, and, and in organizations where that, um, that collaboration is evident um, between compliance and finance, makes for a much stronger compliance function. Um, you know, we recently evaluated 
uh, uh, helped evaluate with some with a law firm a, a compliance function of a large organization where uh, the organization was so set in its ways um, and the silos were so prevalent between the different these different groups um, that it was very difficult for compliance to engage. Uh, with 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 the finance folks and to really get meaningful information and and that's a kiss of death in my mind from a compliance perspective because uh, regulars not going to you know regulator DOJ is not going to care about your internal squabbling it's 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 going to say your compliance function wasn't effective right because it wasn't properly monitoring itself um, so it's really critical I think um, for compliance officers to be strong you know, and to be demanding, it, it's a lot more easy for them to be uh, on the heels of enforcement actions, on the heels of real problems, because that's typically when boards, you know, open up their 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 pocketbooks to fund uh, uh, the compliance officers. Um, but you know, a strong compliance officer with an ability to engage the C-suite, you know, and its counterparts in finance and audit really, I think, is the key. So I, I do agree with you. You know, hopefully that's the trend going forward. And that really gives uh, the compliance function much more visibility into the business and the finances of the business, which is really the key to all this. Well, listen, uh, thank you, Sean Michelle. We kept you for a little bit longer and we know you're busy and, you know, you can bill us for the hour. Um, uh, but I don't know if we can afford your rates, right? No, we know you're, uh, we know you're, uh, no, we uh, know you're a lot lower than the big four. Mike. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. But, uh, <laughs> thank you, uh, for your time and, uh, the discussion today, that was terrific. And if listeners want to reach you, what's the best way that they can contact you? And one thing I will tell people is, uh, Jean-Michel is absolutely great at getting back to you and, and, uh, is always willing to share his thoughts on, uh, critical issues. So, but if people want to reach you, how can they do that? Well, Mike, thanks so much, first of all, for having me. Thanks a lot for the plug. I always appreciate it. Um, I look forward to us uh, working together in 2018. Um, and anybody out there that that might want to have a chat um, or, or reach out to myself or any of my colleagues, the easiest would be to go to www.ankara.com, A-N-K-U-R-A. Uh, and look for us on uh, our, our Who We Are page. They can find my bio and and um, the bios of a lot smarter folks than me as well. Oh, well so thanks good. so much, Mike. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested in the company, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.